Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Allison Heron Lee, who is currently serving as an adjunct professor at New York University's School of Law and as a senior research fellow at NYU's Institute for Corporate Governance and Finance. She previously served from 2019 to this summer as a commissioner of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. And during that time, she also served from January to April 2021 as acting chair of the commission. We're also joined by Anat Alone Beck, an assistant professor of law at Case Western Reserve University, and John Livingstone, a research fellow at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, and a former visiting lecturer on the accounting faculty at the University of California, Berkeley Haas School of Business. Allison, John, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and Anat, welcome back. Thank you so much for having us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting us. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. I'm really looking forward to this discussion with the panel, which will center today on the securities regulation of unicorns, that is startup companies that are valued at a billion dollars or more, and how those companies and some of the capital structures that have grown up around them fit into the public-private divide in capital markets. A centering point for this conversation or a centering paper for this conversation is a recent article that Anat and John have written, Mythical Unicorns and How to Find Them, The Disclosure Revolution, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Business Law Review. I'll add a link to that paper in the show notes, and I'd like to start this conversation with some questions for Anat and John about their paper. Uh, Then in terms of the run of the show, uh, I'll turn things over to Allison for some of her thoughts and commentary from an academic or policy perspective. And I hope to have some time toward the end for some conversation and questions among the panelists. So starting with this paper, Anat and John, uh, and before getting to some of the securities regulation implications of what you write about, I wonder if you could introduce to the listeners this topic of special purpose vehicles, SPVs, that you write about. What are they as a matter of industry? practice? How are they used in the startup and venture funded space? And where do they maybe fit into the capital markets today? Sure. I'm happy to take this question. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to first set the stage. Why are we looking at this new phenomena? By the way, there was a lot of resistance to this about a decade ago, but it became very popular recently. I'll explain what's an SVP, why and who is using it, the risks, and a little bit more about this new practice and why are we interested in it. A special purpose vehicles, SPVs, are widely used today by unicorn firms and venture-backed early stage startups. And by the way, you've probably heard that term before with regards to Enron. There, it was used for different reasons. And these structures are used to take advantage of a loophole that we have in our federal securities law. And what happens is both the firm, the unicorn firm, and also the investors that invest in the firm are benefiting from this regulatory arbitrage. It basically allows the firm to raise large amounts of capital and stay private longer. And I'm going to explain because thank you for giving us this opportunity. I wanted to note that there isn't much discussion about this phenomenon of SPVs in podcasts or even in the tech news industry. You don't really hear much about it. It's a relatively new phenomenon. What it is, some call it a VC fund on steroids, but it's very different than a VC fund. And I'm going to explain the difference between them. So with a VC fund, venture capital fund, you have 
fund managers that are called general partners or GPs, and they raise funds in order to invest in multiple startups. And usually that happens over a course of several years. And then by investing into this fund, there are investors, we call the Investors Limited Partners, LPs, and they get this exposure to a basket of different companies. And essentially, their investment is spread over several companies. Now, what happens with an SPV is that it's a limited fund, okay? It's for one asset. That's when you have LPs, these limited partners, and they only want to invest in one specific company. That's one of the reasons why we have them. And, and by the way, SPVs are used, like I said, in many cases in finance and in venture, they're used in order to pull money. And what they're doing is they're pulling money from a group of investors and they're investing that money into a single company. There are differences, as I alluded to, between an SPV and a venture capital fund. And that is, it's a single investment. It's into one company. And you really are taking more risk by investing in that. Let me tell you a little bit about the people who are investing and the people who are structuring this. Why are they doing this? Okay. And yes, it's also, by the way, a pass-through vehicle. So it's usually to an LC or an LP, limited partnership. Who is doing this and why are they doing this? First, we have some investment venture capitalists who do this and they do this in order to have follow-on investments with their current fund. So let's say they have a fund and they want to give this candy or they want to give this perk to some of their limited partners and they're allowing them, instead of having to invest in the entire fund, they're allowing them to access into these private companies, into these unicorns through this one-time investment. Okay, and then they're doing it through a co-asset investment. Okay, so they're doing it with another investment that they're doing as a fund. And some are saying it's in order to mitigate risk so that their fund, the venture capital fund, doesn't invest too much into this one unicorn. But what they're doing, I think, is they're creating these special purpose vehicles in order to take more risk. So they're allowing people that have that appetite, and by the way, they need to be accredited investors, to take more risks and to invest directly into the fund by pooling them together. And if it's a less established fund manager, for example, it also allows angel investors to invest. So a lot of the startups are used to going to friends and family to raise capital. And so what we're seeing today is a lot of angel investors aggregating together to these SPVs. It's easier to do for several reasons. We're going to talk about that, why it is. And now, by the way, there are also platforms that allow you to do this. There's AngelList, there's Carter, there's other platforms. And they say on their platforms that they're doing thousands of these SPVs and they're facilitating this capital raising. Now, this is from the fund manager side. And of course, from the investor side, there's an, a lot of appetite, right? We have this shift that we'll talk about probably later on about this public and private divide. And so there's a lot of appetite to gain access into these private companies without having to invest into a venture capital fund. Where again, remember, the way you structure the fund and the way it works, it's much faster. You can even structure an SPV in less than a month and you can invest for a shorter time period or a longer time period, depending on what happens with the company. We'll talk about that as well. But then you can do that in several rounds as well. So your money is not stuck in the fund, in the venture capital fund for longer. And with regards to the founders, they accept this, they allow this because that allows them to raise more money and to stay private longer. The more they accept this money, they don't need to do an IPO. They don't need to go through the, what we used to have, this traditional exit avenue, which is an IPO. And 
I have to say there's always an issue with regards to fees. Some say there might be excessive fees. Others say we're going to get a discount in order to do this. So that's a whole separate issue. So that would be interesting if somebody can also take a look at the fees. What happens with the fees there? And so that's just important, I think, to note that we have this new phenomena that was not acceptable before in the venture industry. And now we're seeing more and more of this use. And it allows investors to follow on, to continue with more and more rounds. We see that with alternative venture capital investors, with more money flowing in from non-traditional parties as well. And we also see some backlash and I think sometimes some resistance, perhaps, or there should be. I think if I was representing institutional investors, I would be pushing back against this. Why? Because I would think there's less monitoring. But what you're doing is you're giving more power to the founders. Who's monitoring what's happening with this SPV? Again, remember, it's a one-time investment, a one-time chuck of change that company's going to get. That's some of the background of the SPV, some of the cultural, some of the economic uses of it in Sand Hill Road and Wall Street, and some of the state of play in terms of who's participating in these SPVs. I like to turn now to the implications for securities regulation. Could you situate this practice, this rise of funding through SPVs in terms of how we regulate the capital markets, particularly in light of the divide between public and private companies as a matter of law and as a matter of capital markets regulation. And what concerns do you see or perhaps others see with what might be going on in this SPV space in terms of that? The most important thing that we have to remember about the public-private divide that's happening right now is the gap between these two markets is increasing very rapidly, right? Public markets are well overseen. They're well regulated by a variety of regulators, including the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the private markets are becoming seemingly more opaque, while at the same time, we're seeing an enormous amount of capital flowing into it. The private market exceeds the public market in terms of sheer volume of capital being raised, usually by a factor of two to one. That's a relatively new flip that we're seeing. And so as a result, a greater percentage of the capital fundraising that's occurring is going towards the private market and more and more retail investors are being exposed both directly and indirectly to this more opaque and less well-regulated market. So we have companies who are attempting to stay within this opaque sphere in order to meet a variety of objectives of their investors. And I think the big driving factor behind that is two related but distinct phenomenons. First, we have a number of new players coming into the private capital market, where it's these tourist investors. Anat has written extensively on them, whether they're corporate venture capital funds, whether they're private equity, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds. These are investors that typically did not play in the venture capital round, but are now entering into this realm, where they're acting like venture capital funds in terms of their investment schemes, but not necessarily doing so in terms of monitoring. And that's a dangerous situation, I think, as retail investors are increasingly exposed to being able to invest or have their money invested by them. And as a result, the usage of the SPVs, which adds an even greater level of opacity, it allows these companies to stay in this private market for a considerable period of time. It's a perfect storm between, all right, we have a fast growing market, we have a lot of money flowing into it, and there's no real way to stop the tide coming in. This paper has an empirical component. Could you talk about the research questions that 
motivated the paper that informed the paper? What sorts of data did you use and what were some of your findings from that empirical investigation? Well, I'll start with the question and then John's going to present the empirical data. And what we were really curious with here is we wanted to check what's going on with these companies. How many companies are staying private longer? What happened after the Jobs Act? Why are companies deciding to go dark? And we're seeing our public equity markets shrinking. We're seeing private markets growing and growing. We also see a new phenomenon, creation of secondary markets to allow for more liquidity. And there's always all this problem of risk. Do we have a systemic inequality? Because think about it, you have to be an accredited investor to participate. And there's all these backlash, there's all these calls. People are saying, we want to be able to participate and we want to directly invest in unicorns. Why are only some of the people get to play in these hot markets and we can't? What we were trying to do is take a look at this. We hand collected a data set from Edgar SCC Public Filings. And what we found is that many of these companies now have more beneficial owners than their shareholder record count would indicate otherwise. And I'm going to let John continue here. We, as an outset, we looked at a set of data that we hand collected. It was companies that have gone public over a 10 year long period from the beginning of 2011 to the end of 2021. So we captured the 18 months before the passage of the Jobs Act and then the decade or so that has passed since then. And what we found was there was a noticeable uptick following the passage of the Jobs Act. Now, to, to put it in context, we had some companies right before the act passed Congress that were starting to bump against or even exceed the original limit to Section 12G, which was 500 shareholders of any kind. Now, Facebook, a, a small, relatively unknown company that I'm sure none of us have heard of, and when they went public right before the passage of the Jobs Act, they had over a thousand shareholders of record. So we had a couple companies that were going well in excess of the required thresholds. But since then, we've seen the average number of shareholders of record pre-IPO increase from just under 500, so just under the original limit, and it's nearly doubled to almost a thousand on average. Now, there are some companies that are still around 500 when they're going public. That's not very surprising amongst unicorns. There's a lot of investors being involved here, but we are starting to now see companies going public that are in excess of the new 2000 limit. So Lyft and Uber, when they went public, they both had more than 2,200 shareholders of record. So they're just over the line. We had Palantir. They went public with almost 2,800 shareholders of record. We had UiPath just last year, and they went public with over 3,700 shareholders of record. So we're seeing companies that are now starting to go in excess of these initial thresholds. Now, I should say that as part of the passage of the Jobs Act, one of the key components and reforms besides just quadrupling the threshold limits from 500 to 2000 was we had employees who received shares via an employee compensation program. So stock options, the like, they were removed from the count. So companies were given a real advantage in the sense that they were allowed to decrease their record count by the fact that they didn't have to count their rank and file employees. So the fact that we're now seeing companies go public in excess of it when they don't have to count their employees, that shows how widely spread these companies are. And I, as Allison, I think is going to talk about the original concerns that we had were about the exposure 
to public investors of these companies. And the fact that we have 3,000 plus shareholders involved in these companies, that's a concern for how well they're spread, despite the fact that they aren't obliged to make any public disclosures. Before I turn things over to Allison for some of her thoughts and commentary, I want to ask you, Anat and John, what do you see as really the critical policy issues today when it comes to SPVs, when it comes to their role in VC funding, and how all this fits into questions over the public private divide. How do you think this study or your prior work and not you've written so much in this area, unicorns, how does it form some of that policy concern? So I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge here is that companies are staying private longer. And I think SPVs represent just part of the overall problems, right? If we treat SPVs, that may be treating a symptom, but we're not necessarily treating the underlying concerns. We're seeing a shift away from allowing public investors to own a majority of a company and actually control that company and have founders and other high-level executives be answerable to common shareholders. So I think SPVs and this shift in VC funding away from traditional venture capital rounds where the VC fund may be taking a more active role in management and oversight towards this methodology of venture capital-backed companies being valuation-driven and willing to stay private longer and having liquidity only for some shareholders. I think it leads to a toxic environment and toxic market that isn't democratized capital for the vast majority of Americans. And yet you have this dichotomy of more and more Americans are investing into this world. We have more money flowing in, but less accountability. And I think overall that leads to a real problem. And I think SPVs are just part of the way that this is facilitated. And therefore we need to address it. I'll just add one more thing, and that is with regards to employees. And we should really think about human capital. And here are there also investors. So in addition to protecting our public capital markets, which I think is very important, we also have minority shareholders, right? And these employees, these minority shareholders are exposed to a lot of risks. And they don't have access to information. And until Jobs Act, they used to have access to information. Other investors, sophisticated investors, normally do get disclosure mechanisms to allow them to assess their economic prospects. And here, it's not just economic prospects, it's also their career options. Just think about that. They're really tied to the firm. They're putting all their eggs in this basket. I'm going to talk about the overvaluation in a second. They don't know what's going on. They have golden handcuffs. And unlike large investors that can protect themselves, They can't really protect themselves here. And we're seeing this, that they don't have information rights because of our securities laws. And also, and I've just written about this recently, there are efforts to take away those information rights that they do have under our corporate law, especially in Delaware, Section 220. And with regards to valuation, I just wanted to say a few things. We know it's really a no concern in finance. There are a lot of papers on this, and that is the overvaluation of these firms. We have this lack of disclosure. We have this money flowing in, and that's causing this problem of overvaluation. We have these companies that are deciding to go dark. They're staying private longer. We don't know what's going on. And that's really affecting everybody. 
thank you, Anat and John, for that discussion on the article and setting up some of these issues and topics for the rest of our conversation. I'd now like to turn things over to Allison for her thoughts or commentary, bringing some of her academic and regulatory experience perhaps to bear. Allison, do you have any thoughts on this paper or on the broader issue of SPVs, VC funding, the public-private divide, and all that good stuff? <laughs> yes, I do. Thank you. I want to just start by thanking Anat and John for their focus on this and their research and the work that they've done. It's something I've given a lot of thought and analysis to for a very long time, having been a securities lawyer for 25 plus years. And so last fall, I delivered some remarks at SEC Speaks about the increased capital that's being raised in private markets and what that means both for private markets and public markets and the SEC. And it starts from this premise that you've heard Anat and John lay out, which is the single most, in my view, significant development in securities markets in the new millennium has been the explosive growth of private markets. And we've all seen the stats. More capital is being raised, more new capital is being raised in these markets every year than in public markets. And that has been true for over a decade. There was a tipping point about 10 years ago. It was 50-50. Then private overtook public, and now there's currently anywhere from 70 to 80 plus percent new capital each year raised in private markets and no signs of a change in that trend. So let me just say, if that trend continues, both public and private markets stand to suffer because number one, we need robust public markets for a number of reasons. One main reason is those are the markets in which retail investors have the best chance. They're on a more level footing with large institutional investors in terms of information, in terms of liquidity and other points. Private markets, though, will also eventually suffer or could because they rely in part on the transparency of public markets for more accurate valuations in the private realm. It's not unlike the tension that we see between lit and dark exchange trading markets between stock exchanges and wholesalers. And we should understand that the vast amount of capital that flows into these markets is attributable in part to policy choices, both action and inaction, made by the commission over the past couple of decades. And we now have, as a result, these new but no longer mythical kinds of businesses known as unicorns. So they're private companies, generally speaking, with valuations of a billion or more. And I'll say as a side note, we're actually seeing these unicorns grow to dizzying valuations. We've got decacorns, which is 10 billion and more. We've got hectocorns, 100 billion and more, still in the private realm. And these private businesses that grow to this size, they're not just big, but they're very impactful on our economy. They make significant positive contributions in a number of ways to innovation. They shift paradigms, they create jobs, they stimulate the need for new services. They've arguably changed transportation and travel habits for millions across the globe. They've changed the legal underpinnings of entire markets when you think about the gig economy, even launching civilians into space. And the point there is they have a dramatic and lasting impact on our economies at the local, state, and national level. But investors and policymakers and the public know relatively little about them compared to their counterparts. And if you look at the situation from a historical perspective, we've been down this road before. We've been on this road twice, in fact. So first, in the early 30s, at the inception of the federal securities laws, when there was a lack of transparency that we all know contributed to massive misallocations of capital and massive market disruptions. Congress addressed that and determined that it was in the public interest to create public companies that have periodic reporting requirements for those that are listed on national exchanges. 
Fast forward three decades later in the early 60s, Congress saw that opacity in capital markets had again become a problem. That's because the periodic reporting requirements applied only to exchange-listed companies, but over-the-counter markets had grown significantly in the intervening decades. So both Congress and the SEC acted again, creating what I think you've heard Anat and John refer to as Section 12G of the Exchange Act and the rules thereunder. And 12G, again, enacted in the early 1960s, requires that all issuers, once they reach a sufficient number of shareholders, and a minimum amount of assets, they have to make these periodic disclosures. The idea being we're going to restore transparency to what had become a significant segment of the capital markets. Now, let's fast forward again. Here we are today watching a growing portion of the U.S. economy go dark. So in my view, and this is what laid out in my speech last fall, it's time to shine a light on the role. And in fact, I guess I would say the obligation of the SEC to think about whether it should take steps to address this reduced transparency. And that includes pursuant to the broad authority that Congress gave it under Section 12G. Why 12G? Well, 12G essentially defines the dividing line between public and private markets. It was enacted by Congress, as I said, in the early 60s with the help of a large study that had the SEC do. And essentially says that companies with a certain number, originally it was 500, Then after the JOBS Act, it became 2,000 shareholders of record and a minimum amount of assets. Originally, it was a million. Now it's 10 million. Have to file these periodic reports. That means 10Ks, 10Qs, 8Ks and the like. And that brings transparency to a company once it is held widely enough, meaning once it is held by enough shareholders. So what's the issue? And this is where the SPVs come in and really play an important role. But the statute and the rule in counting up the shareholders when you get to 500 to get to 2000 refers to something called shareholders of record. And in the 1960s, that was a very different concept. Ownership in the securities markets has undergone a fundamental shift since the 60s. Today, almost no one holds a share in record name. You don't walk over to your desk and pull out your share of Disney and there were that you own it most likely through a broker or some other financial intermediary. And it's that intermediary that is currently defined as the shareholder of record. So take, for example, a large broker like Merrill Lynch. There may be hundreds of thousands or more individuals who hold stock through that brokerage, but for purposes of 12G, Merrill Lynch is one shareholder of record. We don't look through to the beneficial holders in counting up the shareholders. So as a result, record ownership in most cases has no meaningful relationship to the actual number of investors whose assets and investments are exposed to these privately held companies. Even some of the largest, most widely traded issuers don't have enough record owners, as that term is currently defined, to meet the requirements of 12G. And that means the decision file periodic reports has increasingly just become an optional one. And the tie between the actual number of shareholders and periodic reporting has just come untethered from its moorings in today's markets. Our reporting regime is now closer to where it was in 64 before Congress intervened to add 12G with a large and important market segment increasingly obscured. And I think it's time for us to reappraise and take a look at our regulations and ask what, if anything, should the SEC do about this? Because investors and the public are increasingly left in the dark when it comes to this ever-expanding segment of the economy. Now, time and again, we take regulatory action on the grounds that it might encourage companies to go public. 
But if that's a legitimate goal of the securities laws, then we should make sure that we work to carefully define the boundary between public and private in a way that's sensible and that it's maintained and that the incentives for going public remain balanced. So the SEC, I think it's time to look again at 12G and we should consider, I still say we, excuse me, I mean it. SEC should consider, having just stepped down in July, I don't have my pronouns quite right yet, but it should consider whether to recalibrate the way that issuers need to count shareholders of record under 12G in order to hew more closely to the intent of Congress and the commission in requiring issuers to count shareholders at all. So in other words, it's time for us to reassess what it means to be a holder of record. And as we do that, as we re-examine how issuers should count shareholders, we need to consider a couple of points. First, as a baseline, we need to better understand how the growing lack of transparency is affecting ordinary investors, like retirees that are invested through mutual and pension funds. I think Anat alluded to this notion that more retail investors are finding their way into these markets through these other types of vehicles, like mutual funds and pension funds, like employees, who, as Anat pointed out, might become overinvested in a company's shares without the ability to really assess their true value. And then if the number of shareholders is going to have any meaning at all as a trigger for periodic reporting, and which would eventually cause most companies to go public, we have to look broadly at the different forms of beneficial ownership. And that means considering to what extent issuers should have to look through to the actual investors whose economic well-being is at stake, including looking beyond street name accounts held at brokers and banks, and then also very importantly, potentially looking through these special purpose vehicles and partnerships. Because as Anat pointed out, you have a vehicle here, they're only investing in one firm, but how many investors are behind that vehicle? It could be anywhere from, what, five to a hundred or more, but we're counting it as one. The bottom line is this, Congress directed us to use the number of shareholders as a trigger. That analysis is arguably devoid of meaning because of the way ownership has evolved in modern markets toward holding in street name and through things like these SPVs. The intent was to require periodic reporting once the shareholder base was large enough, and that intent is no longer being served. So in my view, the SEC, it's time for them to reassess. Thank you for that perspective on the stakes for investors, for the economy and the, the capital markets at large and, and tracing that potential regulatory agenda for the SEC or for Congress to look at going forward. This takes us to the part of these panel episodes of the podcast that I really love, which is an opportunity for the guests to pose some questions or thoughts to each other. I might open with maybe an opportunity for Anat or John to pose a question to Allison, and then we'll switch that over to Allison in the time that we have left on this episode. Anat, John, any questions? Thank you, Allison, for your thoughts and for everything that you've done on this. We really appreciate you taking the time. And I think my question to you would be the underpinning of 12G is that there's a delineation between 2,000 accredited investors per class of equity and or 500 unaccredited investors. And I'm sure as the unaccredited investor definition and the thresholds there really haven't been touched much since they were originally passed in 1983. So I guess my question is, should the commission address the shareholder of records question, or do you think they should address the thresholds for being an accredited investor, or do you think it should be some combination of the two to address these the public-private divide? What do you think the end result's going to look like, the rulemaking? So let me take those in pieces then. I'll start with John's question. First of all, I think the most direct route into getting a sensible dividing line comes through a look at 12G. 
Because again, that is where Congress has said to us, this is the trigger. This is how you decide whether a company is should have to be subject to periodic reporting provisions. And yet the standard that we have in place holds no meaning for actually assessing that. So I think 12G is the most direct route. But I also think that it's very important for us to take a look at the definition of accredited investor, because as you point out, those most broadly, it's based off of a wealth threshold. And those wealth thresholds have not been updated for 40 years. What that means is essentially we've allowed them to increase over time. So we went from at the time of the definition, approximately defining the wealth thresholds in such a way as maybe 1% or so of the population would meet it. It's now some 13%. So we have neglected, and again, let me step back and say the SEC, not wishy anymore, have neglected to keep that definition current and in sync with modern markets much the same way we go through lots of our regulations and make sure that we've updated them, especially when they contain dollar figures that become wildly out of date over time. So I think we need to do both. But in my view, in terms of the dividing line and how to get it to the right place, we should be looking carefully at 12G first and foremost. And so not your question is one, of course, I got asked all the time when I was still in office and still do, what do I think the regulation will look like? And so I'll start by saying, as folks may or may not know, there is the SEC has on its regulatory agenda an item that says we will consider whether any updates may be needed for 12G. So that's out there. And so ostensibly, the commission is considering what, if anything, to do with respect to 12G. I can tell you what I think it will look like, but I can say that I think there are a couple of areas that are really ripe for analysis. Because what I hope that we're going to see is a sensible approach to trying to figure out what's the true exposure of these private companies? What's the true investor exposure? Is it really widely held, but those wide holdings have been artificially concentrated into certain types of vehicles like these SPVs? And if so, should we be looking through them? So what I would hope and expect, but again, I have no particular insight on this and I don't know where it's going, but what I would hope and expect is that they would look for the most obvious places where the concentration is artificial, where the count is artificial in terms of the actual number of investors whose assets are on the line. Thank you so much. Thank you. Allison, do you have any thoughts or questions or maybe some research questions you would like them to tackle after this paper? Oh my goodness. Yes, I would love to see them do lots of research in this space as they've already done and not in particular has lent a lot of heft to the thinking on these topics. But I guess one question I have is I've I read through your paper, so thank you so much for sharing that with me and also listening to your remarks. John, you came back to this and Anat, you mentioned it. There's a couple of dynamics here. One, you said you've got more retail investors that are both either directly or indirectly exposed to private markets. So I'm Curious to know what you think is the reason for that. How has that occurred? And should we be looking at that? And then secondly, on the accredited piece, I'd love to hear more about how you think updating those thresholds would genuinely help address the question of where this dividing line is in terms of how much money is going into public versus private markets. I think this is the million dollar, a billion dollar question, right? The exposure of more retail investors. And about three years ago, I'll tell you why I was really fascinated with this. I was invited to a roundtable at Columbia Law School where I saw some of the largest representations of institutional investors, fund managers, 
And I was a little surprised that I'm also seeing institutional investors on the table. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? And then I understood the exposure, really, of retail investors indirectly into these vehicles. And I really was curious about the way non-traditional investors, the way they would invest, because they're not going to take board seats. They're not going to monitor in the traditional sense that we think about VCs, their investment, but they still want to maintain aggressive redemption. They want to be able to walk out. And then I asked, are you really able to walk out when it's a private firm? Are you going to be able to get your money and run, as they say, as you would in a public exchange, right? You can just sell. And here it's going to be very difficult. And if you do that, there's going to be a domino effect. So that's one way. Another way is I also saw this push with advocating for more access to retail investors saying it's inequitable. It's not democratic that we're not giving retail investors access to these private firms and they want to play in these markets as well. And then I was asking them, how are you going to do that? How are they going to, this is a private market, right? How are we going to open up access to retail investors in these markets? We have these laws for a reason. They're supposed to protect them, which they're supposed to get information. And so directly would be very hard. And if we do it indirectly, who's going to monitor the fees with these special purpose funds, basically? How do we know that the fund managers are not going to ask for aggressive fees, which they've done before. And as the SEC currently, all the time, I see all these risk alerts with excessive funds here and litigation there. And so what's really the best way to give retail investors more access to these companies, right? You hear about all these companies that are creating all this wealth and all these jobs, and then there's retail investors who can't even participate in these markets. And that's when I said, but we have public markets. That's the whole point. And that's why I personally feel like we should encourage our public markets. We should encourage more disclosure. That's the whole purpose, I think. Uh, we want to have vibrant capital markets. We want to see more participation, real participation, but also to protect retails, and that is through disclosure. So I'll try and tackle your question on accredited investors and what I think the threshold change. I think beyond, we'll swing back around to the question of changing the wealth thresholds, the effect of you know, changing that line between it. I think one of the other things we need to address besides just the wealth thresholds, there's other ways that you can qualify to become the accredited investor, whether it be an educational or a licensing background. And I think we've had a series of reforms in the past four or five years or so where we've allowed more people to join the accredited investor pool without necessarily meeting the wealth threshold, but instead meeting it through a variety of licensing schemes and educational backgrounds. Lawyers are, find it pretty easy to qualify for becoming an accredited investor. And that's not necessarily a good thing. I, as much as I love the fellow practitioners that the four of us share in our profession, it's not necessarily an indication that we're competent to be sophisticated investors. I think the same goes for a number of licensing schemes, whether it be different levels of CFA, chartered financial analysts, et cetera, that open the door to allow them to play in these pools, but not necessarily understand the types of products and financial instruments that they're investing in. I think from a broader perspective, if we decrease the pool, so to speak, of accredited investors and make it harder to become an accredited investor, we make companies who are still within this private sphere 
check themselves. They're forced to continue to police themselves. Companies have an incentive to not allow unaccredited investors in. It complicates their cap tables. It leads to all sorts of problems, not just under 12G, not just under the sections that we're talking about, but when it comes to transferring restricted shares, when it comes to who executives can sell to, when it comes to liquidity considerations for their investors, and when it comes to holding different parties accountable for any fraud that may occur. So I think if we decrease the pool of accredited investors, it's going to incentivize companies to police themselves more, to act more responsibly. We'll see better governance from a broader perspective. And if we have more unaccredited investors wanting to come into this pool, that pressure will continue to add up and push them towards going public. It's a two-for-one special where you have them clean up their cap tables and be governed better but also decreases the amount of capital that they have available, which forces them into the public capital sphere. I'd like to invite the guests to offer any closing thoughts that they might have. And since we started with Anat and John, Allison, I might start with you. Is there a coda that you'd like to have or to offer on this conversation? And then Anat and John, I'd love to hear any closing thoughts that you might have as well. What I will say is that having been a student of the securities markets now for and an observer and a practitioner for 25 plus years, I have watched this long, slow, gradual pull away from public markets and toward more and more capital being available in private markets. Private markets are extremely important. We need to keep them vibrant. There's not, I don't mean to imply that there's something inherently wrong with private markets, but what I do know is that we've got to have an adequate balance and we, we cannot maintain that balance as regulators through inattention. I think there's this notion that the expansion of private markets is just the natural result of the evolution of free market. That's not really true. It's a product of the framework of the laws and the regulations through which markets operate. A market economy is just nothing but a collection of rules. If you have no rules, you have no market. So when we relax or we repeal certain of the laws or the regulations, say in the private sector, we aren't moving closer to what you would call a free market, but we're just altering incentives and we're magnifying the force and the impact of the remaining rules that are on the books. So I think we need to step back and say to ourselves, we need to understand that the reduction of regulation changes the balance that exists in securities laws that we've struck between transaction costs for raising capital on the one hand, and then the combined costs of fraud, risk, asymmetric, unverifiable information, and the like on the other hand. We need to look at this pretty directly and ask ourselves, have we got the balance right? All right. Thank you. Anat, John, any closing thoughts? Sure. I just wanted to thank Commissioner Lee, you're always Commissioner Lee to me. It's really an honor to be with you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. And I just wanted to quickly build on your work, right? And I agree with you 100%. I'm a huge fan of your work. I think the explosive growth of private market is the most important development in our new millennium. I also wanted to quickly say that this shift, right, that we have from public markets to private markets, I think it has significant implications for the different stakeholder groups. And I think the more we see this phenomena continue, more companies are going to stay private longer and they're going to be able to raise more capital in private markets. I really think that there's going to be a lot of pressure into changing the status quo. And there are really two, perhaps there's more, but two main approaches I could take a look at. And one is either to democratize access to of retail investors to our private markets, but that's going to be very difficult 
with a lot of challenges or to encourage more private companies into public markets, which honestly, that's what I'm advocating for. That's what I would like to see. We have amazing public markets, really. A lot of countries around the world are very envious of our markets, and I would like to see them continue and thrive. So that's what I'm pushing for. So thank you. And I'll just echo what both Anat and Allison said. I think it's a, a very unique time in our securities markets. I think we're in a position now where we're having a large discussion as a society, as a group of investors, we're saying, are all capital markets working for the betterment of the society as a whole? As Allison pointed out, we have so many great companies out there who are truly revolutionizing the way that we live our lives every day in and day out. These companies are making it easier for us to have pizza delivered and for us to send people to the moon. But we should throw them into the light, say, hey, we would like to invest in you. We would like to reward you for your good performance. And I think that line is something and that discussion is something that we're going to have increasingly as we address a wider range of issues in our society. And I think this is just the starting point for the conversation that we're going to have in the future. So I want to thank Alison and Anat for all of their hard work on this. And I want to thank Andrew for giving me the last word. It's very unusual that I get the last word in life, but thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you all. Our guests today have been Alison Heron Lee, who is currently serving as an adjunct professor at New York University's School of Law and as a senior research fellow at NYU's Institute for Corporate Governance and Finance. She previously served from 2019 to this past summer as a commissioner of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. And during that time, she also served as acting chair from January 2021 to April of that year. Uh, we're also joined by Anat Alone Beck, assistant professor of law at Case Western Reserve University, and John Livingstone research fellow at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and a former visiting lecturer on the accounting faculty of the University of California, Berkeley Haas School of Business. As part of our discussion, we've had some conversation about an article that Anat and John have recently authored, Mythical Unicorns and How to Find Them, The Disclosure Revolution. That will be forthcoming in the Columbia Business Law Review, and I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Allison, John, Anat, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.